Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm joined by Alistair Campbell, former advisor to Tony Blair, and by Eamon Devlin, manager of Ross Trevor Miners' GAA team, who has used some lessons from Alistair's book, Winners and How They Succeed, to improve his team's performance. We'll hear about that later. But first, Alistair Campbell, Jeremy Corbyn's opposition to airstrikes on Islamic State in Syria has put him at odds with at least half of his shadow cabinet, including Shadow Foreign Secretary Hillary Benn. And the lack of unity at the top of the party now is stark. You were one of many new Labour voices to speak out against Corbyn's election as party leader. Have the noise been out for Corbyn from the start? Or could he possibly have avoided this situation? I don't I mean, the knives haven't been out to the extent that he won with a big mandate. But I do think that people are looking for proper direction and strategy and leadership. And, I mean, I've not been in the UK much in, in recent days, but... We just, you know, picking up through the media and through what people are saying, you do get a sense, really, of something that's just not being not held together. And I think when it comes to something as serious as whether the government does or does not uh, take military action against ISIS uh, targets in Syria, then you know the least that you expect from the opposition is is, is a sense of of unity and purpose. Hmm. So do you think, will he be able to restore some semblance of unity at the top of the party? I don't know. And uh, I think that, look, there's a, there's a clear decision to be made here. You either have a free vote. David Cameron's brought forward a, a proposal. Uh, you either have a free vote or you try to impose a line. And then, see, where he's got difficulty, of course, is that most of his parliamentary career has been about rebellion against the party line. So it's, it's difficult. But I do think that uh, I think these are really, really difficult and dangerous times, and I think people have to face up to the responsibility of leadership. Do you believe his opponents in Westminster should work to replace him, despite you know maybe the support that he has around through a lot of the members? I'm not of the sure party? anybody is. I'm no. Not sure. Well, I'm not aware of anybody is. I mean, mm. I keep reading the picking at the papers and. These labels get applied, so Corbynistas are apparently saying that Blairites are trying to... And I mean, I'm pretty well identified as a Blairite, I think. Mm. But I'm not aware that I'm involved with anybody else in sort of trying to... Mm. Get well, maybe, of him, maybe not you personally, but just today in the Irish Times, Dennis Staunton, our London editor, was talking about uh, Labour MPs, talking about him being toast, and it's all anybody's talking about in the cafes and restaurants around uh, around Westminster this Well, morning. thankfully, my life has moved on from cafes and restaurants. <laughs> uh, around Westminster. I don't spend much of my time there. But I'll, look, I'll, what I'll say is this, that he's, the guy's been elected and to be leader of the Labour Party, so he's got to lead. And leadership is sometimes about making very, very difficult decisions. But when you're the public, the public don't look on at a leader of the Labour Party in the same way as they look at a backbencher. And so it's got to get serious. It just doesn't come over to me as being terribly serious or professional at the moment. And do you think he can do that? I've got no idea. I've got no idea, but I mean, I'm, I can't pretend that I'm optimistic. OK. Um, so this situation with the vote on the serious strike, is it in some sense you think 
something coming back to haunt the Labour Party after the um, association of New Labour with the invasion of Iraq in 2003 that was, was such a de- divisive thing for, for Labour? Well, uh, I mean, Ken Livingstone, who, for reasons best known to himself, Jeremy Corbyn has put in charge of a, a review of policy on Trident, apparently said on television in the UK last night that you know Tony Blair was direct responsible for the 7-7 bombings. It's such a simplistic and ridiculous view. Now, can I, could you and I go out and find people who've been radicalised because of the George Bush, Tony Blair decision in relation to Iraq? Yes, you probably could. But is that the reason why all this is happening now? No. People, do, people have got such short memories. 9-11 happened before the war in Afghanistan. It happened before the war in Iraq. What is going on now is a, is a real, genuine threat to all sorts of people in all sorts of countries. And what happened in Paris recently, which produced that kind of wave of emotion around the world, that could have happened here. They don't care. They don't care where it happens or who it happens to. They're just doing it for the maximum impact. Especially, it'd be just as... If, if they do, let's just say they did get their hands on some sort of, I don't know, chemical or biological weapon, they'd happily whack it off in Dublin or London, or Glasgow, or Edinburgh, or Manchester. And, and, and it wouldn't matter to them if there were Muslims there, or children. Mm-hmm. And it's like, people, I heard somebody the other day saying, well, you know, of course, in, in the UK, we're used to terrorism because of the IRA and, and what have you. But there were, there were some differences there. Do you remember P. O'Neill and, you know, the warnings and the, the giving, time, giving people time to get out before a... No, they, they killed people and they tried to kill an entire cabinet. But you're talking here about people who would... <laughs> they would kill anybody. And I just think we've... Uh, it's too simplistic to say this is all about, you know, Tony Blair and Iraq. And we've mm. got to rid ourselves of this facile idea that their narrative about us is right. That, you know, this is all happening because of, you know, West, the West and America in particular are trying to sort of, you know destroy Islam. It's just not true. Mm. But that's the ideology and that's the argument that runs out. It's very, very difficult to deal with. I suppose even some people who would accept those things that it's an inexcusable ideology would probably say that there are a confluence of different factors, uh, one of which might have been the the instability in the region that was created by the Iraq There's no doubt, and I said this at the Chilcot Inquiry and Mm. so did Tony Blair and so many others, that the, the decision to topple Saddam Hussein, I think, was taken for the right reasons and amid genuine fears about the threat that he posed. That went fine, as it were. The aftermath was not well handled. No doubt about that at all. I don't deny that whatsoever. Mm. And you've been, always been consistent in your defence uh, of, of Tony Blair's decision based on the information that he had available at the time. Um, now that uh, th- this situation has arisen where the shadow cabinet are divided, um, in some way it's really come back to haunt the party. Is this going to be the thing that brings down Corbyn? Look, I don't know, but the, the point... People shouldn't be surprised about the, the position that Jeremy Corbyn's taken. Mm. Why should anybody be surprised that he's come out that why should why was anybody surprised the other day when he voiced his concern over shoot to kill against terrorists? Why should anybody be, be surprised at that? Why should anybody be surprised that he is deeply opposed to military action in Syria, given all that he has said in the past? Nobody mm. should be surprised about that. So the question then is about 
You see, the, 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 Jeremy Corbyn is somebody who's made his entire career in Parliament, as has John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor. They've made their entire career in Parliament on the idea that MPs should decide for themselves about what they believe is the right thing to do. And yet that's why it's so difficult for him now to be standing up and saying we should all support the same position, i.e. mine. It's going to be very difficult for him. Moving on to Northern Ireland, in your book Winners and How They Succeed, you count Bertie Ahern among a large number of exceptional people in the right place at the right time who helped bring about the Belfast Agreement. And I know Bertie Ahern is a friend of yours. Um, 17 years on and Stormont has once again pulled back from the brink of failure. Are the right people in place now to keep power sharing working? Well, I thought it was good last week that they, they sort of sorted, itself, sorted themselves out. You didn't have... I mean, what, what happened too often during Tony's time as Prime Minister was that things would kind of move forward up there and then they'd unravel and Tony and Bertie would have to fly in and bang heads together and sort out and then fly out again. That happened a lot. And I think it's fair to say that Peter Robinson, Martin McGuinness and a lot of the other people up there have found it frustrating that the UK government isn't maybe as committed to this as, as we were. But that might be for a good reason. That might be actually because they think they should sort these things out themselves. And, you know, it, 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 it worked last week. It might... But there was the, the event I was at in Belfast last night, there was a guy who said, you know, it's not so much a fresh start as a false dawn. Well, we don't know that. We don't know that. So I think... I always think it's really important. I mean, there I was in Belfast last night. I was doing a, a Q&A with a business audience... And there were postcards out on the tables and they could write any question that they wanted. And I got over 100 questions. One, just one, was about what you might call the peace process. That's pretty extraordinary. When you think that, if you remember when Tony Blair was flying over here the whole time, one of the things he always used to say is, I really look forward to the day when I can come to this part of the world and I'm asked about all the stuff you get asked about everywhere else. Mm, about. So, so I think that just gives you a sense of the progress that there's been. Of course, and yeah, undoubtedly there has been serious progress, but then there has also been in the last few months the revelation from um, Chief Constable George Hamilton saying that the IRA structures still exist and um, they still exert control over Sinn Féin. And um, seeing as you were involved, you had a, a key role in Tony Blair's team at the time of the uh, Belfast Agreement. What understanding did you have at that time of the role of the IRA, how it would continue to exist after uh, some agreement? Um, Michael McDowell said recently that the survival of an unarmed and withering husk of an IRA would be vital and was seen as being vital at that time. But, you know, what was your understanding at that time of how the IRA would continue? Well, our understanding at that time was that the, the, we'd been through that whole period when Mrs Thatcher decided that their, their voices couldn't be heard and that they were effectively outlawed as any part of the political process. Now, what, what happened was that First John Major and then Tony Blair made judgments that actually there was potential in pursuing the idea that some of the leadership of that side of the debate had changed and had decided they were going to go down a different route. And I understand, listen, you're coming up to a general election, I understand why people want to pick over all this and say, you know, it could be this and it could be that and it could have been this and it could have been that. But I think it's important that, that people are judged by what and who they are every bit as much as what and who they may have been and may have done. Now, we always used to say we viewed Sinn Féin and IRA as two sides of the same coin, OK? Tony Blair made a judgment that they had decided that the leadership that we were dealing with, Adams and McGuinness in particular, had decided 
that actually there was a different, a better way, a more peaceful way to try to, if you like, pursue their goals. And I think that remains the case. Uh, now, I don't want to get involved in your election because it's none of my business. I'm interested in it, but it's not my business. And mm-hmm. As you know, our sister, we have a sister party here. Yes. Uh, and our understanding then was that if we made the right bold moves and did some difficult things that actually we might be able to get this peace process moving in the right direction. And we did that. How much patience should the unionists have at this point, do you think, if it's still the case that the IRA exists and exerts some control in Sinn Féin? Or do you have a, have a view on that? Well, that is for them to decide. I mean, hmm. the, the, when you say how much patience... Yeah, well, have? given that they've been waiting, say, 17 years, and, and now it's still... The, you know, we see that they're still capable of criminality, they're still capable of murder, and, and that they still believe, at least, that they exert some control over uh, political parties, a political party that operates north and south. Um, you know, how well, much, I think everybody, uh, not, not just unions, I think everybody should just try from time to time to step back and see a big picture that is much, much, much better than they had before. And I was at both in Belfast yesterday and in Dublin today. I've had people of kind of my generation and a bit younger taking me to one side and saying that because of what we did up to and following the Good Friday Agreement, their children have had a completely different upbringing to the one that they had. So that is the big picture. That is the big picture. Are there things that go on that you can pick over and say this and that and cast this aspersion, have this fear, mm. have that doubt. And you've always had that. Yeah, sure. And you probably but, always will. But I suppose just because we came, we were teetering on the brink last month of the whole power sharing thing falling right. apart, but and that hasn't. was because of those... But it hasn't. Middle. No, it hasn't, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. Well, and that's they good. managed to make it work, but you might wonder how many more years, yeah, well, how many more of these crises okay. can they survive if they're not going to... Uh, if something isn't going you to change. Might. You might. You yeah. might. But... <laughs> It might still move forward. One more question on that. Um, the people, the exceptional people you talked about that were there, of those, the only ones left are the leaders of the Republican side. What, what do you ascribe their that is, longevity? That is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, I mean, who did I say? I said it was Clinton in America. you got Bertie Ahern, Bertie Ahern Trimble, Tony Blair, Hume. David Trimble, John Hume, the Women's Alliance. Seamus Mallon. Uh, Seamus Mallon, Mark Durkin. I mean, there have been a lot of people. Mm. Um, I guess it... It shows resilience. It shows an absolute commitment, I guess. And it shows that they're, you know, they're pretty skilled at what they do. Sure, some of the things... Politicians. That, some, of the, uh, some of the things that you're talking about in your book, uh, Winners and How to Succeed, maybe they have a few of those attributes. I'm um, sure they've read it. Before I, before I t- move on <laughs> to talk a little bit more about the book and uh, to bring you into it, Eamon, about the Irish Labour Party, they are the minor uh, partner in our coalition government. And Lib Dems got wiped out earlier this year. Is there anything that these parties can do when they're in this position to not get wiped out, as it seems to happen regularly here? And, and what, what would you do if you were... Uh, what, how would you advise the Labour Party in this uh, position going into I think this? Right? Coalition is difficult. Uh, I think it's difficult for all parties. And I can remember at the last election, the 2010 election in the UK, I can remember Charles Kennedy telling me that he's worried about the Lib Dems as they'd go in and the Tories would destroy them. And... Essentially, that's what's happened. Um, I think you have to have... It's very, very difficult, but I think the important thing is to is to be responsible, to show that you can govern, but also to have your own character and your own, your own identity. And then as you get nearer to election, you have to have your own agenda. And, you know, it's, it's tough, though. It's very, very hard. Moving on to your book, uh, Alistair Winners and How to Succeed, and I can bring Eamon in here. Eamon, you've used the book to... Uh 
improve the performance of the uh, Gaelic team that you manage. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the book, how you got into it and uh, what good it has done your team? I bought the book about May time um, and I was sort of dabbling with it over a couple of weeks. And you make um, on drugs. No, well, <laughs> I was dipping in and out. It was a busy time of the year. And um, we'd gone through this good patch at the start of the year where we'd won four games in a row and, and things were looking good. And then we sort of went through a, a real sticky patch of five and seven defeats. And I got through the first three chapters and the first three chapters are about um, leadership and, and strategy and sort of teamwork, teamship. And I just, there's a, a Alistair has this theory on, on um, OST, objectives, strategy and, and tactics. And we had sort of uh, thrown away the league, so our next goal was the championship. And I knew that we had a, a bunch of players that were uh, very good, very skilled and very able, um, but we just needed something different. So I, I took this idea of our objectives to win the championship uh, and we started thinking about what our strategy would be and we were thinking about our uh, style of play and how we would work that into what we were going to do over the next sort of 12 weeks. Um, and from that, uh, we give the, the fellas a break for about a week and we said... Um, go and think uh, about what we've done over this last sort of 12 weeks and see how we can develop over the, the next couple of weeks and as a team management team we sort of chatted amongst ourselves as well about what we thought and we brought the fellas back and, and, and we come up with Clive's good friend Sir, Sir Clive Good or Alistair's good friend Sir Clive Wood Woodward um, um, and I had this at the back of my, my mind that he had this idea where he took the England team before the Rugby World Cup and uh, he said to them if, if France was in one room and New Zealand was in another room and Australia and South Africa and Ireland and, and Wales and what would they be planning to, to win a World Cup? And they talked about each of the individual teams and their strengths and their weaknesses and then he said well what do we need to do to... to um, win the World Cup and I took that idea and then I, I sort of married it to Alistair's OST uh, theory and we went through each of the teams that we could possibly meet and then the lads to their credit came up with what we really needed to do and that set the theme for the next 12 weeks. Right okay and so how did you get on the championship? Well we won the minor championship. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Alistair your book it, it, uh, Winners and How to Succeed it draws on your interactions and interviews with all sorts of people from business leaders to political leaders and then a lot of uh, sports uh, people. It's interesting that it's now inspiring more other sports people to succeed as well but you say that political people can learn a lot from elite sports people and that they, you know, they should really look at how they go about their business in, in order to improve. Can you explain that to us? Well, like, you see, Eamon just mentioned that I, I think you have to have strategy, leadership and teamship. They've all got to be good. That goes for any organisations. You work for the Irish Times, OK? You've got a leader. You've got, hopefully, you've got a strategy. You've got a team. You've got all these journalists out there. You, you're all got to be part of the same thing. And if you all fight the whole time or you all have different agendas and you all don't quite work together in a healthy harmonious way then the newspaper's not going to be successful and I just think that in business and politics we look at sport and think well of course they're better at teamship because they're teams but actually what we should be saying is that we're teams as well 
Why can't we be as good at being teams as they are? And so Eamon mentioned Clive Wood, but I worked with the Lions in 2005 and mm. went on these uh, bonding exercises, you call them, with the Lions. And some of them were absolutely brilliant. And you felt the team getting stronger. And then I'd go back and say to Tony, God, I did this amazing thing with the Lions today. It was incredible. I remember a big painting. I've described it in the book, this big painting exercise where they got all the players to paint. And they didn't realise what they were painting until the end, mm. when suddenly it became clear they just painted the logo of the Lions. Now, OK, trivial, simple, couple of hours. But it was brilliant for that kind of sense of building the teamship. And, of course, when I mentioned to Tony we should do this with the, with the cabinet, he sort of, you know... <laughs> just as you are, laugh me out of court. But actually, and I'll give you another very specific example. I've got a chapter in there about data and innovation and how you use data and innovation. And a lot of the people I interviewed, like Brailsford from cycling, Woodward from rugby, Ben Ainsley, Britain's best ever sailor, Billy Bean, who transformed you know, the money ball guy in baseball, they all said, if you're going to look at data, go and study Formula One. And I went and spent some time with Mercedes and I was completely blown away. I don't, I don't really like Formula 1. In fact, I don't like Formula I think it's boring. But I was blown away by the scale of the data gathering operation. But then what really impressed me was that they used data not for confirmation bias, which is how we tend to use it in politics. You know, you get a poll. Oh, that's good news, whatever the figures are. You get economic data. That's good news or bad news, whichever side of the fence you're on. They use data to drive innovation. They use it to feed a mindset that says no matter how well we're doing, we could have gone faster. How could we have gone faster? And they analyse this stuff to the nth degree. So that's learning. And, and how could you not learn something from a, I don't know, a, 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 somebody like a Billy Bean who's transformed a, an entire baseball culture? How can you not learn from that? You're not going to do the same thing, but these things, like these general lessons like... Eamon was talking about my theory about, you know, which is, I think, obvious objective strategy tactics, right? It's an obvious thing, but that's something that he's taken away. I've had, I've had, I've had letters from people who've done it in, in, in business. I've had people who've done it for themselves. Somebody who's trying to stop drinking, say. Objective, stop drinking. Strategy might be, might be Alcoholics Anonymous. It might be therapy. It might be openness and honesty. So you can, you can apply it to anything. And so I just think that these sports guys, even on the communication stuff that I do, these top sports guys now, they, they get as much media profile as prime ministers. So they've got to work out how to do it. Now, they can learn from us. We can learn from them. You quote Arsene, Arsene Wegener in your book um, when he's talking about what it takes to be a great leader. I don't know if you remember the quote. Mm -hmm. Something about having a Part vision of, of the world and a philosophy of the world and the values that are important to you to be a great leader. It kind of struck me as sounding a little bit like uh, Jeremy Corbyn, in fact. Uh, do you think that Jeremy Corbyn is, has some of the qualities of a great leader? Well, he is an Arsenal fan. What did Wenger say? He said, a person who is a good leader has ideas and a vision of the world. To yeah. have a vision of the world, you have to have a philosophy of the world and values that are important to you. OK, yeah. yeah. That's the minimum. That's the minimum requirement. <laughs> That's an absolute minimum. And then you need a lot more than that as well. OK. Wenger said a lot of interesting things. Um, but look, I've, I don't deny that Jeremy Corbyn has values and also I've always thought I mean his constituency is next door to mine he's always been a very very good MP question is can he build the coalition of support that you need to win a general election and time will tell uh, back to you Eamon uh, so would you recommend this book for anybody who wants to uh, improve their, their sports team or he thinks their... they should buy one for all of the team players <laughs> as well well if he buys them 
Um, no, I do. There's lots of um, ideas in it, even for like a, a management, particularly when you think about people more or less say the same thing in a changing room all the time. It's something different and fresh. That's uh, really good. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much to Eamon Devon and to Alistair Campbell. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.